VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? It was somewhere along the lines of when I had gotten probably about 65 rejections from investors and they had all told me it was a terrible business. And you, you know, after like that number of rejections and reasons why things are such a bad business, even the most confident person gets self-doubt that kind of seeps in and it just brings you down. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. I'm your host, Danny Fortson, the West Coast correspondent for the Sunday Times, coming to you live or recorded from Oakland, California. Thank you for tuning in. It is a pleasure to be here for another week. I have a fun fact for you this week. Did you know that Pokemon cards, that is the buying and selling of cards between individuals, is a billion dollar a year business? A billion dollars trade. For these little pieces of cardboard with, uh, you know, some small Japanese cartoons on them. Who knew? I did not. But this is just one of the many fascinating factoids I came across on this week's episode, which I think you're really going to find fascinating. Um, it is with Grant LaFontaine. He's the founder, co-founder, I should say, of Whatnot, which is a live auction app that is absolutely booming. So you can kind of think of it as a, as a cross between Twitch and eBay. It's like, kind of like an online auction for the millennial and younger generations. And the company, just over the past six months, has raised nearly $75 million in three separate rounds um, from a bunch of investors, from TikTok personalities and professional athletes to some of the cream of Silicon Valley venture capitalists. Why? Because it has blown up as a destination to buy and sell collectibles of all kinds, which of course themselves are having a moment. Now, probably just if you look at the timing, this rise has closely followed the rise of other stuff that we have covered before on this pod from the price of cryptocurrencies, which of course have come down dramatically in the last month or six weeks or so, to NFTs, to sports cards. But LaFontaine reckons that this boom is actually here to stay. And even if it's frothy right now, you know, people paying $500,000 for old Pokemon cards, single cards, um, he reckons it's not a fad. But what is very clear is that there's something interesting happening here, especially when you look at this from the kind of live shopping angle, because another way to look at this is this is kind of the social media version of the home shopping network, the kind of social mediafication, if you will, of live shopping. And whatnot appears to have hit upon something, and it's growing very, very fast. 
Anyhow, it's a fascinating company at a fascinating, super weird time. And Grant tells us all about what this crazy ride he's been on for the past, really only about 18 months, has been like. So with that, I will hand it over to Grant, um, who can tell us the whole story and how it all started with uh, kind of a feeling I think a lot of us have, which is very simple. eBay sucks. There's got to be a better way, and he reckons he's found it. So without further ado, I give you Grant LaFontaine, the co-founder of Whatnot. Enjoy. Well, look, thanks for taking the time. I think what you guys are doing is super interesting. And I thought as I was kind of reading up on you guys in the last couple of days, I saw someone refer to you as eBay 2.0, which is kind of catchy. Do you agree with that? You know, funny enough, I do agree with it because let me, I, I guess I'll tell you about kind of the, the genesis of whatnot. Me and my co-founder uh, had been really big buyers and resellers of collectibles and various other things online from kind of Pokemon cards to sneakers and beyond. Before you go on, how old are you? Can I ask? I am 32. 32. Okay. So you're, I'm 44. So you're kind of a generation before me because growing up, I had and still have boxes of baseball cards, most of yeah. which I should just throw in the fireplace. But I think I was, supposedly I have a couple in there that it might be worth something. But um, that was kind of when I was growing up, it was baseball cards and garbage pail kids. Yeah, there's been a resurgence in both of those. But for me, the biggest thing was Pokemon cards. And so, you know, in, in a lot of ways, like my younger years have come full circle with whatnot. Um, <laughs> literally the first thing that I ever sold online at the time, it was Yahoo auctions. It was still when like Yahoo and eBay were kind of duking it out in the early days was Pokemon cards online. And it was right. before you could even uh, collect payment online. So what would happen is you'd totally rely on ratings and reviews and reputation and you'd sell a card. And I can remember sending like a holographic Chansey. I think that was the first card I ever sold. Going to the post office with my dad after they had sent a check in the mail for $10. <laughs> after you had cash in hand. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's I, that's exactly what it was. It was you'd sell it. Buyer would take the risk on of hoping you would then send it by sending you a check. Cash yeah. the check. Head to the post office. Drop off the holographic base set Chansey card. <laughs> and and so i guess you know getting back to your first question is is ebay 2.0 accurate so i've you know i've been an ebay user from the very early days uh because i've been buying and reselling collectibles online and when me and my co-founder logan were starting whatnot we were just increasingly frustrated with the ebay experience outside of adding paypal sometime in the early 2000s i think mm. The product hasn't meaningfully changed. I did a whole piece on why kind of, I mean, this is a rough translation, but why eBay sucks. Like, how is it that it started out as this juggernaut and now it, you know, it's a fraction of the size of Amazon and all these other kind of internet OGs and it hasn't really changed. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really fascinating. If you go back to like, I don't know, 99 or something like that. And if you were to put money on who was going to be the biggest technology company at that point in time, nine out of 10 people would have said eBay and everyone would have said eBay is going to eat Amazon's lunch. And I think the truth yeah. is they should have. And the biggest difference is that Amazon was run by Jeff Bezos and the co-founder of eBay, 
left in the early days. And so it was run by a bunch of consultants without, you know, perhaps a vision for pushing things forward and instead really, really focusing on the business instead of the problems they can solve for users. So anyway, you know, fast forward to genesis of whatnot, you know, it, it was, it's obvious to lots of people, as it was you, that eBay sucks. So we knew that. That was like kind of insight number one. The, the second insight was we could see that a lot of people like me and my co-founder were getting back into collecting and into the market. And there was this resurgence of collectors. It was people, you know, my age, you know, had disposable income who were getting back into the things that were nostalgic to them from childhood. And we made a bet. Right that this audience would be willing to switch away from eBay if there was a better solution out there. And so we literally did start whatnot with the idea of reinventing eBay for the modern day. And do you have a sense of why? Because like, you know, you have people like Gary Vee and others like pumping baseball cards and now uh, Alex Ohanian. And it does feel like all of a sudden there's this massive boom from cards to nfts like all of a sudden everybody's collecting it's a thing again and it feels like it's kind of come out of nowhere and i don't really understand what's happening yeah i would say so one i think the premise of it coming out of nowhere is is probably incorrect but i think what happens with things like this is they slowly percolate and build and then Mm. all of a sudden it hits a point where it reaches popular consciousness and it like really takes over so we officially started the company in December 2019, but you know, as we were talking through ideas, it was it was really kind of tail end of the summer of 2019 was when the idea started to form. Yeah. And if you look at the data of collectibles markets back in the summer of 2019 or even 2018 and even before that, you would see huge increases in the price of things, like you know, drastically. Whether you know, the couple of things that I can recall when I was when we were like assessing whether to do this in the early days was I think at that point in time, a first edition Shadowless Charizard PSA 10 was going for about $50,000. $50,000 for what? A PSA 10 Shadowless Charizard first edition. What is a Shadowless Charizard? I wish I had one. I was, I saw you looking around. I was like, are you just going to bust out something? No, with I, I wish I, I was seeing if I had a, I, I don't, I don't have a Shadowless first edition one. I was seeing if I had just a, a regular <laughs> uh, base set one. Uh, but I would call it, it's, it is like, you know, with all of these um, collectibles categories, there's probably like for each one of them, there is one like premium piece. Yeah. So I'd say, you know, in sports cards, that's probably like the the Michael Jordan rookie. It's the thing that everyone knows and everyone wants. And so that's what it is in Pokemon. And I don't know if you follow kind of what's been happening, like the celebrity side with people like Logan Paul getting into Pokemon. He recently fought Floyd Mayweather and going into the ring as a chain on his neck, he was wearing the you know a first edition Shadowless Charizard card worth right you know half a million dollars on his neck. So, anyways, you know, back in summer of twenty nineteen, that was a fifty thousand dollar card, and if you go back five years, that's probably a couple thousand dollar card. Wow! And so, when you look when you look at the trajectory of the market, it, it's just it's, it has been constant over the past five at least five years. I don't I don't have the data going further back than that. And it's just been increasing. So I would say there's there's been this underlying trend of people my age starting to get disposable income and starting to get back into things that they love from childhood. And that's what's been driving the collectibles market from even before this kind of craziness took over. Then I would say you had two other core trends take hold in the past year or so. 
Mm. I'd say number one is obviously people are sitting at home with nothing to do <laughs> because of COVID. Yep. And they're looking to get back into hobbies. And so I would say this collector trend got accelerated as a result of people looking to get back into hobbies and you know, push things even more. And, and took what was a high growth curve and extended it, you know, yeah. brought up the curve. Then the third thing that I think is happening is this push for alternative investments and people mm. looking to get returns on their money. I think a lot of that, you know, as a result of just the amount of money now sloshing around in the economy as the Fed continues to print. Yeah. And so I think when you take this trend of people in their, call it, you know, late twenties, early thirties, and maybe a little bit longer, uh, getting back into collecting with disposable income. You take people bored at home getting into hobbies, and you take people looking for returns on assets that just can't be printed out of thin air. Mm. Uh, you get this thing that is has bubbled up uh, to such a point that it is now part of pop culture, and you can't ignore it. So you have Logan Paul wearing Pokemon cards, and Gary V talking about sports cards to magic cards to you know, crypto punks. Yeah, it feels like in the same kind of vein as the meme stock kind of thing that's happening right now. Absolutely. You know, none of these things boil down to one piece or one trend, but that is one of the things that's feeding into it to bubble it up even further. Right. But if we could go pre-2019 when you started thinking about this, because you've done other, this is not your first startup. No. So if you could just talk about kind of what you did before this, which brought you to starting whatnot. So, you know, my first foray into the startup world was with a startup called Kit, which was basically a social commerce platform. And I think one of the things that people, including myself, have been playing around with for a really long time is, is waiting for social commerce to, to take hold in the United States. Most commerce in the U.S. and Western world is high what i would call like super high intent commerce which is you go to amazon you punch something in the search bar you maybe read a review and then you buy it and and broadly every e-commerce platform in the internet is basically just search based and there's always been this hypothesis in, in theory that says you know communication with people recommendations from people what i would call like the social side should be really big because it's so important in purchasing decisions as well as just having a good time and being entertained and that's never taken hold online yet. And so the first foray into this was Kit, which was all about kind of personal product recommendations. Because it's very, if you don't know what you're looking for, you know, online today, it's very hard to discover something. Uh, I would say that idea was just, you know, maybe a little bit too early for, for the times. And social commerce, there haven't been that many instances of anyone who's been super successful in social commerce in the past decade basically. So you sold Kit? Yeah, we sold Kit to uh, Patreon, which uh, is a um, you know, crowdfunding platform for creators. And Yeah, we've had Jack Conte on the podcast. Oh, okay, cool. And so that went on to go build out the merch business there. Right, right, right. Before you did Kit, like, what did you study? Like, what did you, how did you get into this whole world? Uh, you know, I would say what I studied and how I got in is almost unrelated, uh, but I'll <laughs> tell you the story of it. So, okay. you know, I did my undergrad at Cornell University and I studied economics and I studied economics because I was always, I was always really into markets, which is why I think I bought and sold and did arbitrage mm. when I was like an eight-year-old kid. And so that was always just a passion area for me. Mm -hmm. What were you arbitraging as an eight-year-old? 
Well, that was Pokemon cards, then into video game items, then into sneakers. Um, I used to be one of the biggest resellers on a video game called Diablo 2. Used to resell all of these ruins and in-game items. So you created like a market of these in-game items like skins or whatever else? It basically was, you know, early days of gaming online. There was always these kind of black markets for items. You know, it's it's more readily apparent now with things like um, Fortnite skins and yeah. and what's happening with NFTs, but it's been around for a very long time. So you're doing that as a kid and on eBay? Uh, doing it on eBay, doing it kind of black market, probably on PayPal, where you'd like get a reputation in game and people know that they could come to you and send you money. And then we go ahead and send off the uh, in-game items. <laughs> right. So you studied economics after all of that kind of on-the-job training, as it were. Yeah, I think there's just always, you know, it's, it's always kind of weird what someone's into. But, you know, for me, it's always kind of been markets and market making and how kind of money flows through the economy. So I studied economics like most people at Cornell who were studying economics at the time. I thought, you know, maybe I'll go into finance or management consulting. Yeah, go be a banker on Wall Street. Yeah, it seems like a good path to like go down and make some money. So I, you know, honestly, I, um, I, you know, I did all those interviews and I got those job offers. Um, but the summer before I, I graduated, I went to a work at a tech startup in San Francisco <laughs> and I loved it. And I just found it way more fun. And, you know, you kind of, you have way more control. You can solve problems. You're actually like building something, which is far more rewarding than, I don't know, moving objects around a slide or numbers around a spreadsheet. Right. What was the startup? At the time, it was called um, Rapleaf, and then it turned into this company called LiveRamp, which I believe did IPO and then get bought by another company. It's a it's a data company. It's kind of like right. data, you know, data sales and aggregating data across lots of different sources. But it did go public and then bought by another company after it went public, I believe. But um, I was stupid, and I said. You know, they offered me the job to continue. I said, ah, no, I'm going to go and do management consulting because that seems like the right thing to do. So I did that for my <laughs> first year. I did that for my first year out of college and I hated it. And it's like, I need to get back into tech. Ended up getting a job at YouTube and product marketing. Took that. And that's kind of, that kind of begun my, my career in tech plus video and entertainment, which is right. largely where it's remain today with maybe a little bit of commerce thrown in there as well. So what does a product marketer do at YouTube? It's a good question. The, the truth is uh, any part of marketing and it can kind of change like a product marketer at YouTube can probably do any number of like five different discrete marketing roles. When I first got there, a lot of what I was doing was helping launch new product features for on the creator side of the platform. So right. working with the product team, to get those features in market, get creators using them, make them aware of them, et cetera. And I actually kind of flipped and went and did brand marketing specifically. And at that point in time on YouTube, it was it predates the time when people knew that YouTubers were famous and were kind of like this new wave of celebrity and you see them everywhere. And one of the big problems of the business was people didn't believe that YouTube was a legitimate platform with legitimate creators and celebrities. And as a result of that, you know, not as many people went to it as well as advertisers wouldn't advertise on. <laughs> that's really funny because that can't have been that long ago. But given that that was the thinking then, it's quite extraordinary. 
Yeah, it, that was the, um, so it was probably like 2011 was kind of, that was the state of the YouTube business where you had these creators who had amassed huge audience and people loved them, but to kind of the mainstream at that point in time, mm. it seemed like this niche, weird internet thing that was always going to stay there. Oh, some kid in front of their computer makes videos. That's not what celebrity looks like. That's yeah. not where I want my brand to be and so forth. And so that, that was, that was the belief at the time. And so what I was doing then is we were working side by side with a bunch of these big YouTubers, people like dude, perfect. And we made big above the fold advertising campaigns, TV commercials, billboards, everything to turn them into known names, like basically make them real celebrities. So is there one celebrity that you're like, yeah, I helped kind of get them there? You know, I, um, I couldn't say that because I think the truth is like the core of the people who are big and well-known names in the platform is they put themselves there. Yeah. I would say we put marketing dollars behind some of these people to help accelerate something that was already happening. And so maybe if I wasn't there, that team wasn't there, it would have taken another year and a half, two years. But the trend was there. Uh, the new wave of celebrity is is an individual who connects really deeply with an audience and, and build content that they love and isn't something that's like mass produced in a studio. I have a friend from college who works for one of these kind of production companies that specializes in doing stuff for and with influencers, like kind of prank videos and podcasts. And, you know, it's, I can't remember what it's called now. I visited his office many years ago, but there's, to your point, it's all kind of rough and ready, but they've got a whole company now that basically does production. It's like a production house for YouTubers. And, you know, that's been another big trend that seems to, in the past year, it's, it's one of these trends that's always, it's been happening since probably like 2008 with the advent of YouTube or whenever, honestly, like pretty soon after YouTube was started, has been this whole creator economy and ecosystem has been getting built. And then in the past year, it's bubbled up to kind of popular consciousness to the point where, you know, probably if you were to like pull, you know, the top VCs in terms of like the things that they're interested in investing in, like the creator economy would almost certainly be one of like the top three trends that they're, they're thinking about and talking about now. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So you did YouTube and then you started Kit? Then started Kit, sold it, stayed at Patreon for a little bit, decided I needed like a little bit of a break, went back to the big company and went to Facebook working on uh, Oculus. Hmm. I was kind of, I was intrigued by VR. Are you still intrigued by VR? Um, <clears throat> I think, so I think the open question with VR is how big of a thing it will be and will it extend yeah. beyond video games? I think it's an incredible video gaming platform today. And there's still a lot of work to be done to turn it into a truly mainstream computing platform. Yeah, uh, I wouldn't say it's impossible because these, you know, you, you don't really know. Certainly Zuckerberg's trying to make that happen. Yeah. Look, there's, there's a lot of really smart people there. Who, who mm. believe it will be the next computing platform. I would say it's, it's relatively unknown right now, and it could. I think the, the critics are probably overly critical. And then, you know, you know, the truth usually lies in between the spectrum of the lovers and, and like the, the yeah. people who absolutely hate it. Uh, I would say it's absolutely a great gaming platform. If I were to put money on it, I don't know that it will extend, extend much beyond that, but 
I wouldn't be surprised if my bet would be an incorrect bet there. So you were working on Oculus for how long? A little under two years. And what were you doing? So I was running um, the Oculus App Store there. Oh, okay. So I was responsible. Well, I guess I was the product manager on the Oculus App Store. Right. So I, w- I was working on what do we build software-wise to make the store better, as well as helping figure out the policies that we have in the ecosystem, how we work with developers. And the big thing that was happening while I was there was we were launching uh, new Rift S and Oculus Quest. And so spent a lot of time working on what the, the App Store experience and content in the App Store was for those two devices. So you did that for two years and then you start WhatNot? Then I started WhatNot. And I said, well, I've been in the big company for a while. Be nice to, to go back to the startup game, um, be my own boss and try and build something from the ground up. And how did that go? Because, I mean, you're doing this job at Facebook and then you kind of strike out on your own with this, this idea of remaking eBay. Was that hard to kind of get off the ground, to raise money, to kind of get it all together? Yes. And I guess absolutely yes. Getting anything off the ground is immensely difficult. The reason I paused for a second is we basically had six months of immense pain <laughs> And then we got the pieces to click and it's been off the races since. And so in part, I've had a lot of pain and maybe some more pain than a lot of people have been through. I'll walk through that in a second. Mm. But we've also had in the short period of time, we've, we've been around for whatnot, had almost more success than just about anyone else has either. So it's kind of, it's this dual sided thing. So I guess I'll talk about the early days. Yeah. Early days of whatnot. Quit my job at Facebook, I think December 5th, 2019. And we're trying to get the platform up and running. Uh, marketplaces are hard to start because you need to have buyers and sellers on at the same time. And how do you get buyers when you don't have sellers? How do you get sellers when you don't have buyers? So generally speaking, you have to work really, really, really hard <laughs> to get a marketplace off the ground. Yeah. And so I think for the first three or four weeks we were working on it, we could generate more than like one or two sales a week. It was like pretty pathetic so maybe this is the part where we describe briefly what whatnot is because i've been on the app it's basically like kind of amateur kind of live auctions a bajillion going on at any one time and you can kind of pop in bid on stuff pop into another room etc so the way i would describe whatnot is it's it's basically a live streaming platform and marketplace it enables anyone to be either like a Sotheby's style live auctioneer or QVC mm. style live host. So one of the, the ways I've heard it described to me is it's, it's kind of like eBay meets Twitch. I think that's kind of an apt way to describe it. And that you built that. We built that. And, and well, I should, you know, I should say that wasn't the first version. I would say there's almost no great consumer internet company that, starts and ends in the same place yeah and you know me and my co-founder we're kind of students of history as far as like tech startups go and you know what can you learn from the past and so we've always our philosophy has always been to just you know build build really great things for users build them fast make sure what you're building is the right thing and if you hear from someone or you learn something and see an opportunity you'll kind of go chase it so you know we started off building it we didn't have the live bit at first. Oh. The live bit came came later on. 
The news, the views, the analysis, the investigations, the exclusives, the interviews, and the business. Get more of The Times and The Sunday Times for less with 50% off a digital subscription for six months. Sale now on ends June 29th. Subscribe today at thetimes.co.uk forward slash Danny in the Valley. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So what was the initial idea then if you're going to, you know, if we're starting from the point of eBay sucks, it needs to be remade completely. What was the initial idea? So that was the the thesis. And then we had two vectors we believed we could attack on. Uh, so we believe we could attack on social and we believe we could attack on safety because eBay didn't moderate their marketplace, doesn't moderate their marketplace very well. And so that was always the starting point. And so the first version of Whatnot was, was basically a more moderated marketplace experience with social identity built in. So you could follow someone, you could see what they're listing you could like like things and add them, to, you know, to your want or have list. And um, you know, it took like four weeks for that to get rolling. We actually, you know, at the end of December because sales were looking pretty bad. We we're like, we got to get to this number of sales, otherwise we got to figure out if we're doing something else. And it was like twenty thousand dollars in sales in January. I think was the goal. We hit it, so we kept going. Mm. And I, one of the things I should note um, is when we got started, we only sold one collectible. We just sold Funko Pops. Is literally the only thing that we sold in the marketplace. What the hell is a Funko Pop? I know I'm totally dating myself right now. Yeah, but... no, a Funko Pop's a little. I'm seeing if I have one on my shelf. Yeah, I do. A Funko Pop's a little vinyl doll, uh, and it's a publicly traded company that makes them. They're called Funko, and there's basically a Funko for everything you're a fan of. I've seen this. Yes. Yeah, they have like twenty thousand licenses. There's a Funko for every Marvel character, every Star Wars character, Parks and Rec characters, and everything in between. Right. And so there's a big collector's market built around them. And because, you know, we're starting a marketplace and we have to solve this chicken and egg problem, we decided to focus really, really narrowly. And we said, we're just going to sell Funko Pops. And so how do you get the word out? Is it social media ads to kind of people who are into Funko Pops? <laughs> I don't know if that's a vertical you can target. <laughs> yeah, we, you know, we, we did ads. We partnered with people who are influential voices in the community and then once the product started picking up steam, 
uh, people really liked it. And so they would talk about it and share it in their own communities. And we slowly and surely became known as like one of the best places to buy and sell Funko Pops. Right. And so I guess, you know, that's maybe by April, we had become known as like one of the best places to buy and sell Funko Pops. And so also around April, COVID hits. <laughs> yeah. And no one knows that the world's going to collapse. And so, you know, at that point, we we're actually trying to fundraise for the company. I think I talked mm. to about 100 investors and call it like 98 of them said no. And the two that said yes were basically friends of mine who took pity on me and, and wrote me a small investment and said, Grant, I believe in you, but you know, I don't really know what you're doing. Right. So had you raised money for your previous startup? Uh, previous startup raised, yeah, about a couple million dollars. And was it hard because you had to sell it to Patreon and it didn't sound like it was a rip-roaring success? Because you always hear the stories of like the celebration of, let's call it failure, as like that's being like, oh yeah, people love that. That makes you even more investable when you come back and try again. So I don't think it was hard because of that. I would say, you know, at page, for that startup, I wasn't the one who managed fundraising. Mm. So I wasn't the one who built the relationships and had the level of trust. I think my co-founder Camille was. And I think she would have been able to raise money much easier than me because I didn't have a relationship. So I'm not really a relationships kind of guy. That's not, that's not my forte. Like fundraising is not my like strong suit. But, you know, you had to go and do it. And then we had the luck of it happening during COVID where people weren't sure if it was going to be like the next Great Depression. And then all we were doing was selling Funko Pops and, and you know, classic, <laughs> you know, look, I, I've I got it. this Funko uh, Pop marketplace startup. It's a great idea in the midst of the world falling apart. And so we did. We, we thought it was a great, like we, we believed fundamentally it was a great idea. You got to start a marketplace small you know, brick and mortar was collapsing. It was clearly all, like a lot of it was going to move online. We, we actually believed fundamentally what we were doing was right, which is, I think, after getting 100 no's from investors, what kept us going and building and, and saying, eh, you know, we don't care. We think Funko Pops and, you know, selling vinyl dolls is, is the right way to get this thing rolling. <laughs> Did you, do you know how many no's you actually got? Was it 100? About 100, yeah. And and basically, I got it got to so many, it was just destroying my time. And sometime around like May, I just stopped fundraising. We had like enough money. I didn't, you know, I came. I was at a big company beforehand. I'd saved some money. Didn't really need it that badly. We actually moved. We temporarily moved the business to Phoenix. Um, so we we're building the business out of Phoenix. Just because it was the pandemic, and you're like, why not move to Phoenix? Pandemic, uh, save money. Right. Phoenix is cheaper. We basically had high confidence in ourselves that we were going to, we were on to something and we were going to get something going. Right. And so it was just a mat. We just felt like we needed to make sure we had the time. To do it. So there was just the two of you still at this point. Yeah. It was three and a half of us. Three um, and a half. Yeah. We had just three and a half of us. We had a, another engineer. His name's Gustavo. He's out of Brazil. And then uh, designer John, who we used to work with at Kit, came on board as our halftime designer. He was actually out of Italy. <laughs> So you had a guy in Brazil, a guy in Italy, and you two in Phoenix trying to convince the world that selling vinyl dolls online is the future. Yes, yeah. Sounds like I can't believe there was any doubt this would, wouldn't, wouldn't work. Yeah, can you imagine that? <laughs> <laughs> but it was, it was purely, it was very logical. You know, you just had to stretch your mind a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But so anyways, fast forward, in July, we launch our live video product, and it instantly blows up. And growth goes, you know, we we're actually growing really well as a business, even at that point, even just focused on vinyl dolls. We were 
every month growing 30, 40%. Um, but launch live video started growing 120%. Wow. And we did that for multiple months in a row. And we were still only selling Funko Pops. We decided to do our seed round. And, you know, investors were like, hmm, we're still only selling dolls. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah. wow, like, look at this growth. And so, you know, we, we managed to raise a, you know, four or four and a half million dollars for our seed round. And, um, you know, the, the, the thing we were also able to hone in on in that round is, as we got smarter about what was happening with videos, we were able to take some parallels for what was happening in China with live video commerce and social commerce. I was just messing around on the app the other day and it, it's a little TikTok-y. Yeah. Where it's just, you can kind of just drop into, you know, you can kind of like scroll between rooms basically and see who's selling what and some people are funny and some people aren't, whatever. It's not TikTok, but it's, it has something to, there's an element to that. Yeah, I would say, you know, I think Connie, who led our Series A around at Injuries and Horowitz, um, has this term she's coined called shoptainment, uh, which is it's kind of, you know, it's this entertaining thing with like shopping built into it. And I think that's kind of an apt description, you know, internet meets entertainment meets commerce. Right. And it's got this interesting, cool, fun vibe that sucks you in. And so you raised whatever, four million bucks. And that was what last summer. So that was, I think we closed it out in September of 2019. We announced it maybe a couple months later, something like that. Right. And so, you know, part of that was it was looking at China. Last year in China. You mean September 2020, you mean? Yeah, September 2020. September, October, somewhere right around there. And then part of, part of why we were able to raise that round was, you know, we just got Funko Pops, but this live video shopping thing feels like it's going to have a moment in the Western world. And it's freaking huge in China. $180 billion last year in live video shopping sales growing 100% year over year. One of the biggest really? mark yes, one of the biggest markets in China. It's it's and this is effectively moving QVC onto your phone. I mean, putting it crudely. Yeah, simplistically. I, the reason I push push a little bit on that when we <laughs> launched our live our live video bit. One of the things that made us nervous was we're like, no one our age wants QVC. But the reason we built it is because we felt like we were building like the anti QVC. It was fun. It was entertaining. It was social. It brought in communities. It brought in stuff that you actually liked and cared about. So I look, it's, it's, it's a fair description, but what makes it work on your mobile phone with this generation is fundamentally different than what makes it work on, on your TV and live shopping. What makes it work? Because I get, I'm presuming the vast majority of your customers are young people. Yeah. I'd say our core customer is probably 25 to 34. Then, you know, it, I, it's this combination of things that you love the community that you bring into it and the entertainment value and interactive, like the, almost the interactivity in a lot of ways. Mm. So when I think about QVC, I think about stuff that I don't care about. Yep. Salesperson kind of pitching me stuff. Whereas this is fundamentally things that I care about, uh, relationships that I'm building with someone and the level of interactivity you can't get on TV. And when you talk about the community, what do you mean practically speaking in terms of what you can do in the app? What ends up happening when people go on whatnot and, and say are in Pokemon streams is they meet a lot of other like-minded people who are into Pokemon cards and they actually build relationships from it. Mm. And so you go back in the app, people know who's in the stream, whether it's the seller or the people in the community, they talk to them and build relationships. We've actually had multiple people date each other having met on whatnot and they're still in relationships. Right. 
And are there like rooms, like community rooms where you guys can go in and chat about Pokemon or baseball cards or whatever? Right now it's it's built around the live, but the future yeah. whatnot is there's much more rooms or ways to interact with right. with people. We just haven't built it yet. So you raise that money in September and you're like, cool, but you're still just doing Funko Pops at that point. How do you get to this past month where you what you've had two more rounds since then? We've had two more rounds of fundraising since then. Which is also seems crazy because it feels like I'm reading more and more of this. He's, you know, startups that if you seem to be doing well, all of a sudden you just like, you can just raise tons of money and it's happening very fast, like kind of a rat tat tat type kind of cadence to it. Yeah. So I'll answer the first, that, that question first, and then I'll go into how we mm. kind of got to where we are. I think that is a true statement, which is the top companies are now raising money faster and quicker than before. But what's also happening is that the top companies are growing and much faster than any company prior to them. I've yet to talk to anyone in another marketplace or have seen another marketplace that has grown faster than us. It hasn't happened. And some of the biggest marketplaces you'll read about who are now multi-billion dollar companies for the age of the company we are way further ahead. And mm-hmm. so I think, while your first statement is true, I think that statement, there's, there is also this piece that companies are growing quick, bigger, much faster, which then you know, starts to, you know, when you look at the comparison and numbers, it starts to justify why that money is happening. I would say it's not strictly because the market's being exceptionally frothy and going after craziness. It's that actually when you peel back the numbers of it, there's support for it. That I think is that the biggest difference is it's just like technology companies because now everyone's online, everyone's using their mobile phones, and then the, the technology ecosystem for how you build your applications is more, more built out. You can just get further in a short period of time than you ever could before. Right. So you raise that money in September and then you raise, what, another $20 million four or five months later? Maybe four or five months later, yes. And then three months later, we raise another $50 million. And how do those come about? Are you like, oh man, now we've... I mean, at some point, do you expand beyond Funko Pops and then you start to see that growth and then you start getting incoming calls or how's it work? Yeah. So we were in Funko Pops, we raised our seed round. We said, okay, we're going to get into Pokemon cards now. And we launched into Pokemon cards. And in tandem with that, we were actively talking to bigger firms to you know go and fundraise. We weren't officially going to do it, but... Mm. Um, you know, starting to build relationships because although we did raise a, a sizable sum, we thought this market, we know this market's going to be big. Believe live shopping will be one of the biggest consumer trends in this decade. And, you know, we launched Pokemon cards. It very quickly became even bigger than Funko Pops. And so at that point in time, we mm. basically validated that we could go and launch, successfully launch into multiple categories and do it successfully. At which point we became a much more attractive business to invest in because the number one complaint you would have from VCs is, are they just a Funko Pop app? Well, any investor it seems totally reasonable, right? And then you say, no, well, no, here's how we do it and we can go into more. So we went and we did it and we did it successfully and Pokemon became bigger than Funko Pops. And we closed the investment with uh, Andreessen Horowitz and then we launched into sports cards. And same thing happened. Not only did we successfully launch into sports cards, it became our biggest category and is now the biggest one on the platform. And then we started launching on more things, comic books, etc. And within a pretty short period of time, uh, we became the number one live shopping platform. All of our other competitors fell behind us. 
and we were growing at exceptional rates. And so then, you know, lots of people started to come to us wanting to invest. And we, you know, the, the, the Series B round. And we made the decision that if we had that, we could continue to expand the business even more rapidly, bring in really great people and invest deeply in the product. And we decided to do that at Round of Fundraising. And just thinking about something like Pokemon cards. Because Pokemon, you know, as you say, you grew up collecting. It doesn't feel like, and you can, you'll can, you know about this, way more about this than I, but like, it doesn't feel like kids today are really into Pokemon. It feels like this is like something that happened then and that you're trading amongst these people who have nostalgia for it. So one, is that correct? And two, can you give a sense of like how big that market is? Like how much money is being generated by people selling Pokemon cards? So the first one is, it, you know, is it just this, like kids aren't into it? I would say that's false. I am seeing like a lot of younger kids get into Pokemon cards. Like when I, when I talk to, I, I don't know what's causing it specifically, but mm. um, there are a lot of younger kids who are, do, who are into it. You know, when I talk to people, they're like, oh, you know, my kid was on whatnot. He loves Pokemon cards. It's a lot of what I hear with like investors and when I talk to executives now to potentially bring on to the company. What I would say is true though, is probably the market is mostly driven by, call it people my age, 32, who have lots of disposable income. But people, people are still into it. You know, Pokemon's like the number one franchise in the world. It's literally like the mo- one of the most known brands. I forget there's, there's mm. some way that people define it. But it is literally one of the most known brands, bigger than Star Wars, bigger than Marvel. It's Pokemon. And so there's just a lot of people who are into it. Bigger than Star Wars? I believe so. Yeah, like I hold on. You, you go go look it up after this. You got to confirm. Like there's. I'm I'm going to. Oh good. I'll put that in the show notes and see if I can find it. Yeah, yeah. No, literally, uh, the stat is. I, I have to figure. I can't remember how people define. It. I usually like to be very specific with these things, but the stat is it is like the biggest franchise in the world. Then in terms of the market, it would be hard exactly to to get a great pulse on it. But I I'd say almost certainly it's greater than a billion dollar a year resale market. Uh, and so I'll just define the resale on eBay. It's probably $150 million a year category, something like that. But then there's tons of other places. These are getting bought, sold and trade. A billion dollars a year. Yeah. And po- resale on Pokemon cards. Absolutely. And are these cards generally that are 10 or 20 years old or these new, you know, like the vast majority of the market is sub $50 sales, which means a lot of it's newer or a lot of it's like cheaper, older cards. You do have the expensive things like, the first edition Shadowless Charizard that'll sell for $500,000. Obviously, that, that can add quite a bit to that billion-dollar market, but the most of it is still cheap. That's incredible. You know, what's happening there, too, is, is just because it's percolating the popular consciousness or pop culture, uh, you're getting all of these celebrities and influencers who are really into it that further increase the market size. So someone like Logan Paul. So there's, there's a big moment in kind of Pokemon, uh, September of 2020, where where Logan Paul got a base set Shadowless first edition box. Hmm. It's probably three or $400,000 at that point in time. And he opened it up live on his YouTube channel. And the day after he did that, all of the prices in the Pokemon market shot up like 2x. Everything what? for an ex- extended period of time. Yep. And he, so Logan Paul is one of the most famous people in the entire world. Yeah. And so, you know, I would, the, the analogy uh, you can understand there is it's, it's almost like Elon Musk talking about Bitcoin, mm-hmm. where if he says something positive, it shoots up 25, 30% or if he like 
says it takes up too much electricity, it, it goes, you know, cuts in half. <laughs> yeah, totally. And, and so you, you kind of have this phenomenon across markets now. And so, you know, you had someone like Logan Paul get into it and prices increased 50%. And then all of a sudden, lots of other people get into it. One of the bigger sellers on our platform is an NFL linebacker on the New York Giants. His name's Blake Martinez. You know, it's, it's people like that, that, you know, you know, people trust them and follow them and, and they can shine a big light on it. And when you shine big lights on these things, uh, the market increases. Is that one of the reasons, because I saw the list of investors in your most recent round, and there's a whole bunch of social media influencers, professional athletes, celebrities. It sounds like, I mean, you've got a whole bunch of people with kind of name recognition. I'm sure you didn't have to take money from them. How does that help and why are they interested? So I think it's, you know, one, we try and work with people who are really passionate about what we're doing and who love what we're doing. And if they are, we can find a way to work together to do things that they enjoy and are passionate about that also help us as a business. You know, these these days, athletes, celebrities, influencers uh, can have a really big voice and can get a lot of people interested in something. And so if, if they like what not and what we're doing, uh, they can help grow the business or connect us to interesting people who can help grow the business. And so, you know, it's just valuable to be working with people like that. Right, right. Is there anything you learned from your first startup? Any hard lessons that you brought with you? Lots of hard lessons. You know, most people who are successful at startups, it is not their first first time. They've had hard <laughs> lessons that they've learned before. I think a lot of it comes down to, you know, how you build a great product for people. Really, really, really listen to people as opposed to being so bought into a vision or idea of what you think the world should look like. You know, the mm. truth is, is that um, great products solve problems for people. And so you, you have to listen to them very deeply and intently and make sure whatever you're building solves their problem. And if your vision for what the world should look like misaligns with where value is for people, then it's your vision that's wrong, not the people. So, I, you know, that's, that was how we got into live video is, is we didn't have an idea that that was exactly what we wanted. But we saw that clearly that it was going to be valuable for both buyers and sellers. And so we built, you know, I think... That's number one. There's all sorts of other lessons like who you hire and who you bring into a place like this. A startup is fundamentally different than a big company. You need someone who's willing to roll up their sleeves, wear multiple hats, uh, real problem solver. And so you have to find you know, those types of people to build out your team if you're going to do it successfully. And then you know, above all else, like the world moves really fast today. And so you know, if you're going to build a successful software business, you equally have to move fast. So I'd say those are the ones it's listen, you know, the product is based on solving user problems and you should be really focused on that and not your vision. Bring in the right set of people to help you build that uh, people that are, you know, really good for startups, highly adaptable problem solvers, wear multiple hats and do it at a crippling pace because the world's always speeding up and getting more competitive. Right. Why'd you call it whatnot? The name fits so perfectly and we were able to get the domain. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's just the you know we always imagined that whatnot was going to be an amalgamation of a bunch of different categories we always mm. said are you look yeah we started in funko pops and we only had one thing but we always envisioned we're going to get into comic books and sports cards and pokemon cards and even vintage fashion and even mechanical keyboards later on and all these other things and it was it just felt like Pokemon cards, comic books, and 
uh, Yu-Gi-Oh cards and whatnot. It just it felt perfect. And right. we were lucky enough to be able to get the domain, which is, which is actually a very big challenge when you're trying to name an early stage startup. Yeah, for sure. Who's buying this stuff in terms of geography? Is it mostly America? Is that where you're just focused right now or is it all over the place? Yeah, it's primarily focused in America. You can, we do ship internationally. Um, if you're a seller, you have to be in the US though. And I would say, you know, 99% of our, 99.9% of our sales are in the United States. Got you. Your worst day of work and your best day. Ooh, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, I don't know the exact day, but it was somewhere along the lines of when I had gotten probably about 65 rejections from investors and they had all told me it was a terrible business. <laughs> and you, you know, after, after, after like that number of rejections and re reasons why things are such a bad business, even the most confident person gets self-doubt that kind of seeps in and just brings you down, you know, so you take a day and you sit there and you reflect the next morning and go, you know, why am I doing this? Is this what I really mm -hmm. want to be doing? And the answer to, to that was still the affirmative. I want to build companies I like building. I think there's something special to be built here and I think we can do it. And so, you know, you go from these lows and you got to like sit there and give yourself a pep talk and, and get built back up. So that's, you know, probably some time off. Uh, in April, and you know, as COVID's taking over the world, and we're just selling Funko Pops, and all investors hate our business. Um, <laughs> best day, I think. You know, the days just keep getting better and more exciting. You know, I could have said when we raised the seed because then it's like validation in the business. Then when we did the A, and we did that with a really great investor, or you know, we did the B in short order. You know, those are like moments in time where you feel like you've accomplished something real. But the truth is like every every handful of weeks or months, we hit another milestone that I'm, you know, continue to be equally proud of. I would say though, neither, I, I believe probably the worst days are still to come and, and still the best days. And I think that's that's kind of the nature of the startup is you you have to mentally prepare yourself for those highs and those lows. And so it's been good so far. I'm happy we've had both highs and lows because it's prepared me a little bit for what's to come. And lastly, the... Um... What do you think becomes of eBay? Do you just think it just kind of just stays over there in its kind of corner and kind of just bumbles along while it kind of gets left behind, especially by the, you know, younger generations, the folks that are coming to your platform? Yeah. I mean, the future is yet to be written. I think eBay is certainly on that course of, of kind of getting disrupted from not innovating enough on its platform. And so if I had to take a guess... I would say eBay continues to be a strong business for the next decade, but slowly gets eroded. And it's been happening for the past decade or two already. It feels like there's a, this is a moment in time where more businesses, whether it's our business or, or others, are, are really going to take bigger and bigger chunks out of it, though. And they have yet to show that they can innovate and push the product forward in a meaningful way. Right. Well, I wish you luck. Thank you. And I hope you find another closet to fit all your stuff in. <laughs> <laughs> it just, it just, I'm not going to lie, it keeps growing. I'm going, I'm sure I, it does. <laughs> I, I might need a couple. But um, Andy, thanks so much for taking the time. It was fun. I really appreciate yeah, it. It was a pleasure. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Grant for taking the time to explain all of that. I feel like a real dullard because I'm like, really? But it's real. I actually ended up talking to a couple sellers who use whatnot and they were kind of two guys lost their jobs in the pandemic in the past six months they've sold $350,000 worth of Pokemon cards out of their garage 
yeah, and they're feeding their families. They have both have families with this. So um, it's quite extraordinary times. Anyhow, I hope you enjoyed it. Love to hear what you think. Is this the future? Is this just a passing fad? Uh, you can email me at danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. You can hit me on Twitter at Danny Fortson. And of course, uh, you can find me in the paper at thetimes.co.uk. I'll be writing about this this weekend, so please do check it out. And thank you again for listening. That is all. Have a fabulous weekend, and we will talk to you next week. Want more out of this podcast? Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Danny in the Valley to read articles based on these interviews, broader discussions of the topics covered here, and of course, the amazing work of all my colleagues across the rest of the paper, all for less than one pound a day. Start your free trial now by going to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Danny in the Valley. 